I invite you to open your Bible to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. And I know we've been taking our sweet time in Mark chapter 10 uh, because I feel like I've said Mark chapter 10 10 times. And for those of you who are with us uh, maybe for the first time or just uh, recently getting into the Gospel of Mark, it really is an ideal time to get to know Mark's Gospel. Number one, you could read the whole thing in just a few minutes. In 30 minutes, you could probably read all of Mark's Gospel. You could certainly just in a few minutes read and get caught up to chapter 10. In it, you'll find one of the most simple accounts of Jesus' life offered to us among the four Gospels, one of the most moving accounts, one of the most uh, dramatic, I think, accounts of of Jesus' life and teaching. And uh, in my experience so far, one of my favorites as far as a literary creation, uh, a genius of revelation woven in uh, such artistry from this author Mark. In cooperation with Jesus' close disciple Peter, we have one of the most lovely and touching portraits of Christ in all the Bible. And so as we get to chapter 10, we've been slowing down somewhat because chapter 10 is the purpose statement of Mark. This is where Mark starts to really bring into focus his thrust, his point, his proposition, his thesis. And that's Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In that telos, that statement of intention and direction, Mark tells us the whole center of the Christian life is to be surrounded by the cross and that the Christian life that is based and centered and grounded in the message of the cross is cruciform in all of its interests so that the purpose of Jesus' coming is the laying down of his life. But what comes of that death in our place is a sort of posture, attitude, lifestyle, and obsession that recognizes that even the glorious God himself in human form did not come to be served, but to serve. And so there we have it. We have the cross, and we have the service that's derived from the cross. This statement comes in a context, a context that we've been considering all the way back to Jesus' demands of discipleship. And I'll try to bring all that into focus today as we look at a very simple passage of Scripture, Mark 10, verse 28 through 31. Mark 10, verse 28 through 31. I'll begin by reading it to you. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother, or father, or children, or farms, for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive 
a hundred times as much. Now, in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last. And the last, first. This is the very word of the living God. Lucian of Samosata was one of the most famous early critics of Christianity. He was a Greek satirist. He lived in the second half of the second century, approximately 180. He hated Christians. And he had just kind of a dour and and awful outlook on all of life. Uh, Sort of that Greco-Roman comedian role, which was not very funny, but more acidic and harsh. Lucian is a, a famous writer, but maybe what he's known for more than anything else is his depiction of early Christianity. I want to read to you a paragraph from his uh, work called The Passing of Peregrinus, the Death of Peregrine. It says this, The Christians, you know, worship a man to this day. The distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account. You see, these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they are immortal for all time, which explains the contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion which are so common among them. And then it was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers from the moment that they are converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws. All this they quite take on faith, with the result that they despise all worldly goods alike, regarding them merely as common property. Lucian of Semosata. Apologists of the Christian faith love Lucian's words. The reason that we like Lucian's words isn't because he's on our side. He's not. But he's one of the ancient proofs, uh, not only of the commitments and existence of the early church, which is indisputable, but even for one of Christianity's earliest and harshest critics, he was sure that Christianity was a farce. But he obviously believed that Jesus Christ existed. And for a modern critic of Christianity, Lucian is one of thousands of lines of evidence that you could provide to them 
to show the authenticity of the historicity of Jesus, that Jesus was, in fact, who he said he was, that he did exist, that he did live at the time that uh, the Bible records his, his living. And even the commitments of his earliest followers were clear to someone who was writing not to support them, but to mock Christians, not to praise them. But he clearly heard and believed that Jesus not only existed, that he was crucified, and that his followers had radically reoriented their lives because of the message that he left to them. I love Lucian of Samosata, mean, nasty guy that he was. When he said these misguided creatures start with the general conviction that they're immortal for all time, which explains the contempt of death and voluntary self-devotion, which are so common among them. And when he says from the moment they are converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage, and live after his laws. All this they take quite on faith, with the result that they despise all worldly goods alike, regarding them merely as common property. We see a portrait of what it means to be a disciple of Christ, crystal clear, even through the eyes of an adversary. That's how clear Jesus's call to follow him is there is no question about what it means to follow jesus in the gospel of mark mark has laid it out with the words and demands of christ very clearly and that's why in mark 10 28 peter asks what i perceive to be a genuine and heartfelt question. And he asks it in the context of the entirety of the Gospel of Mark, which is all about what it means to follow Jesus. A message centered around the cross at the distant horizon of this Gospel. It's where the conclusion of Mark will land at Calvary with the death of the Savior. And it's the arguments of the disciples that drive their communication all the way through as they clamor for preeminence and victory and societal impact. And Jesus just keeps pointing them at the cross and at a life of humble service and at a proclamation of a message that he came to inaugurate. Peter has just heard Jesus after seeing all his miraculous works. He has just heard the words of Jesus about one of the most fundamental institutions in society, marriage. That's what chapter 10 began with, a discussion that out of its context may seem like you know, something for a, a seminary student to try to, you know, parse apart and figure out what the, the rules and regulations of divorce are. But that wasn't Jesus' intention. Jesus' intention was just to reinforce that as he's called these followers to himself, they aren't to abandon their, their marriages. That marriage is a one flesh union intended by God to be between a man and a woman 
who follow Jesus faithfully and follow Jesus together. And then Jesus, in his depiction of discipleship, teaches his disciples that little children have something to do with the kingdom as well. And so Jesus says the the childlike nature of these children are what the kingdom is all about. Children coming in a childlike way, small, insignificant, uh, eager to be with Jesus. And so Jesus has talked about the role of, of marriage and children, and then he's interrupted by the most prospect of all his potential disciples, the, the one who is the most advantageous, the most significant. This disciple, this would-be disciple, falls down before Jesus, and we meet the rich young ruler. And the way Jesus handles him, we looked at it for a few weeks, is, is pretty surprising Jesus loved him and cared about him and and called him to to follow him, but identified that he was unable to follow Jesus because of his singular lack. In verse 21, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. And he's the only one in all the Gospels who came to Jesus for salvation, eternal life, in his words in verse 17, and goes away sad. And it came down to one matter. It came down to his possessions, for he owned much property, verse 22. And that launched Jesus into a a settled period of instruction with his disciples, where they were so flabbergasted by Jesus saying that the wealthy couldn't enter into heaven because their wealth would be a burden to them, make eternal life an impossibility for them, that that didn't even fit into their worldview because wealth was, in the Bible, a sign of blessing. And so if those who are most blessed of God are not eligible to be disciples because of their wealth, they just didn't, didn't have a way of understanding that. And so Jesus introduces them to, in verse 27, the impossibility of salvation. With people, it is impossible. Eternal life is impossible. Discipleship is impossible. But not with God, for all things are possible with God. And feeling the weight of that, the weight of that impossibility, and the the seriousness of the call to be a disciple of Jesus, and the obstacle that something that in their minds would have been completely positive. It's it's good to have possessions. It's good to have wealth. It's a sign of of wisdom and God's favor in so many cases. How is this all working? And then you have these 12 ragtag disciples, well, 11, who have left everything who are still following Jesus, who haven't turned away, who haven't left sad, who've experienced the love and leadership of Jesus, and now they're wondering, because their expectations about the nature of the kingdom, it it continues to be flipped upside down. Jesus is, in verse 32, going to underline once again the necessity of his crucifixion 
which they didn't have room for in their conception of what the Messiah's kingdom would be like. And so Peter speaks on behalf of the group, as he often does. But I don't find this to be one of his foolish moments. And he doesn't find the Lord's rebuke, as he often does in other places. He asks a genuine question that should be asked by every true and earnest disciple today. If you are a follower of Jesus, Peter's question should be on your lips. And the answer that Jesus gives is so compelling that it should mark your life so that even a skeptic sees your commitments by the way that you worship and live. And so let's start by looking at the question and then look at Jesus' glorious response. What's the question? Peter began to say to him, after all that Jesus just said about family and wealth and the impossibility of salvation, behold, look, we, that's in Greek in the emphatic position, it's Peter speaking on behalf of all the disciples, and he's insistent here, In the face of the impossibility and the cost of discipleship, Peter says, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. It isn't even a question, is it? But he needs the Lord to answer him. Peter's not wrong. What what Peter's saying is is true. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 16. As Jesus was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, that's Peter, and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen, like Egan. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, They left their nets and followed Him. Going on a little further, verse 19, He saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, and they were also in the boat, mending their nets. Immediately He called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants, and they went to follow Him. When Peter says, Behold, we have left everything and followed you, he is making a a statement of absolute fact. This is the experience of the disciples. They are not like the rich young ruler who went away sad because he didn't want to divest himself of his precious possessions. They're not like the Pharisees and the scribes who prefer their rituals and traditions and preeminence and power over the lowly humility of the Lord and his wise teachings. They'd rather keep themselves where they're at in society. They're not like that. They've they've left it all behind. When they go to temple, everybody looks at them bad. They're associated with Jesus of Nazareth. And there's more questions than answers from the religious powers about these guys. They're not like the Pharisees. They're not like the rich young ruler. They've genuinely left it all. Chapter 2, verse 13. And Jesus went out again by the seashore, and all the people were coming to him, and he was teaching them. 
And as he passed by, he saw Levi, it's Matthew, the son of Alphaeus, sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And there again, we have disciples leaving behind their former manner of life, leaving behind their vocations, their means of of provision, leaving behind the comfortable lives that they had in various levels, and getting up and literally following Jesus. And this is exactly what Jesus would continue to demand. Chapter 8, verse 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. What he required of those first disciples at the shore and at the tax booth is what he requires of all his followers then and now. And that's why he told the rich young ruler, one thing you lack, go and sell all you possess, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. And it's why he'll say in verse 49 of this chapter, and Jesus stopped and said, call him here. So they called the blind man saying to him, take courage, stand up, for he is calling you. Jesus' call always comes with a cost. He demands total devotion, total reliance on Him. If you're going to follow Jesus to be with God, it requires all or nothing. Because we serve a jealous God. He will not accept half-hearted, adulterous devotion, but only pure following, total abandonment, sacrifice, submission. You'll follow Him and you'll follow Him alone. It's probably appropriate that I'd ask you, have you done that? I mean, honestly, have you done that? Have you forsaken everything precious to you to follow after Jesus regardless the cost? Have you waited out and have you been like the rich young ruler who said, it's not worth it, I love my stuff too much? And for you, maybe it wasn't stuff, maybe it was relationships or lust. Sin, self, idolatry, ambition. But have you? Counted the cost and followed Jesus. Because if you have, then you, along with Peter and his 
friends can say, behold, we've left everything and followed you. That's the question. That's not really a question. And Jesus provides an answer that is so, so important. How does Jesus respond? Amin, lego, haimin, is how he responded. He says it 13 times in the Gospel of Mark. And it's this emphatic underlining. When we hear it, it just sounds like Bible language, right? Truly, I say to you. We don't talk like that. Truly, I say to you, I'm going to have five tacos. It just doesn't. I mean, it's, it's true. I am. Cinco tristes tacos. So we don't, we don't underline it like that. I think we say things like, no, seriously. <laughs> or, or we say, I really mean it. Or you've got to listen to me. That that's what Jesus is saying. Amen, lego, jaimin. Truly, I say to you. There's a a genuineness in Jesus' response. There's an urgency in Jesus' response. He doesn't say, you haven't given up that much. He acknowledges the reality of the cost of discipleship to his true disciples. So if you are a disciple of Jesus, present here today, Jesus says something to you with genuine, heartfelt sincerity. He says it to you and to every one of your fellows. Everyone who has followed him, Jesus has words for you. He has an answer for you. And he wants you to understand not just the cost of of discipleship, but the reward of discipleship. And this is where Jesus' teaching is so helpful and clarifying and potentially life-changing to us. Because I think most of us would anticipate Jesus' answer being his words at the very end of verse 30. What is the reward for discipleship, friend? What's the reward for following Jesus? It's eternal life. I mean, isn't that worth all the trade? I mean, isn't that worth the exchange? Like, I'll, I'll leave behind fishing boats and father so that I can have eternal life. I mean, that's, that's Bunyan, right? That's the Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. Fingers in his ears to drown out the sound of his companions and family crying out for him to stay. He runs to that eternal city and he cries out those two words, eternal life, eternal life. That's how we would answer that question. And it is a part of Jesus' answer, but it's not the bulk of his answer. Jesus identifies the clear requirements of disciples in the most intimate circle of their lives. And he provides for them this incredible 
list. A list of deprivations and a litany of gains. A list of deprivations. Truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left. This is all disciples without exception. If you are a follower of Jesus today, he is talking to you and about you and about the things that you have been deprived of because of your discipleship. The things that you've missed out on. The relationships that were precious to you that you had to cut off because you had to be faithful to Jesus. The opportunities and ambitions that you left behind in order to serve him and follow him. Jesus is talking to you and about the particular things. In fact, the most intimate things that you had to abandon to belong to Jesus and to forsake for allegiance to him. And in these deprivations, we learn so much about the cost of discipleship and the reward of discipleship. Let's look at the deprivations. Number one, house. House. It's just a domicile. And it's important to say even here that lots of Christians have houses. And they're still Christians. In fact, Matthew kept his house according to the gospel. They would go meet in Matthew's house. Peter had at least uh, his mother-in-law's house. She was on her way out, though. She seemed to get sick regularly. It's going to be Peter's house. Disciples had houses. The early church met in Christians' houses. And so this isn't a list of things that you must not have. You'd have to rewind to our, our understanding of what Jesus was teaching about riches, that riches, that wealth, that... Uh, the preciousness of riches won't have a place in the age to come any more than a camel can go through the eye of a needle or a razor scooter could beat an F1 race car or whatever. It's an impossibility. You'll never be able to take that stuff to heaven, Jesus said, because God's kingdom is, is one of reversal. The first or last, the last or first, Jesus will say, But in particular, those who have left their home, their family, their possessions to follow Jesus. That's what's being described here. You see, there will be rich people in heaven. And when they get to heaven, they won't be rich anymore. That's Jesus' point. And the reorientation of their life after their conversion, once they become disciples, is they're not rich anymore either because they don't care about that. The problem with the rich young ruler was that his treasure was too precious to him. Clement, one of the church fathers, said a rich person who shares this perspective holds possessions and gold and silver and houses as gifts from God and knows that he possesses them more for his brother's sakes than his own. Chrysostom, another church father, said the golden tongue. He said, let us not then blame the things, but the corrupt mind. For it is possible to be rich and not to be deceived, and to be in this world and not be choked with its cares. They that are in sound health know that it 
Prick sharper than any thorn. That luxury wastes the soul worse than care. Yea, it brings on premature old age and dulls the senses and darkens our reasoning and blinds the keen-sighted mind and makes the body tumid. It's an old word, tumid. It means flabby. I'm getting a tattoo. I'm not really getting a tattoo. Jeremy. Whence our falls are many and continual and our shipwrecks frequent. Chrysostom and Clement are both saying that Jesus hasn't excluded the rich on account of wealth itself, on account of being landowners, on account of having relationships with your siblings. He hasn't fenced off salvation against those people if they are able and willing to submit all of their life, their wealth, their possessions, their family commitments to God's commands. And to prefer Jesus to everything else as passing and transitory. And what Jesus is saying is it's impossible for anyone to turn away from their sinful commitments to Jesus apart from God's intervention. But when they do, their life is different, their possessions are seen differently. They're not even their own anymore, they belong to their brothers and sisters in Christ because they live for God and they live to follow Him and their money doesn't mean anything to them. And so that's why Jesus says house because for some of His followers, they lost their house. Follow Jesus in a predominantly Muslim country. Pick one of dozens of countries and you will be stripped of your ability to own land. Follow Jesus in the early church society that was predominantly Jewish like the epistle to the Hebrews addressed and you would have lost brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers because you were now cut out from those rituals and sacrifices that had become such a fabric of life and society. You couldn't in good conscience celebrate Yom Kippur. You couldn't in good conscience participate in the Passover anymore when you knew it had been transformed into the love feast of agape. And so everything was different. And so many have experienced that same kind of cold shoulder ostracism, or being cut off from inheritance. Some of you are currently considering the weight of what it means to follow Jesus because your parents are not happy about what you're doing right now. Jesus' words are for you. It is not to say you must abandon your brother or your sister or your responsibility to mother or father or certainly your children. But following Jesus might cost you all those things. And it's a price you're willing to pay. And so the litany of costs, of deprivations, house, brothers, sisters, mother, father, children, or farms, all intimate allegiances that define the central part of your life. Jesus could have listed a lot more stuff than that but he just looked right at the defining moments of your existence. 
And then he tells us why you did it. Why you were willing to leave it behind. Why you had to be cut off from some of those things in so many cases for these disciples. It was done for a purpose, for a reason. There was a motivation that underlied all of it. And Jesus identifies it. Why leave house and brothers and sisters and mother or father or children and farms? Well, the answer is twofold. Jesus says, for my sake and for the gospel's sake. Why should you come to Christ if you have not yet come to him? If you've been resisting Jesus for a long time, what should your motivation be? Twofold. Jesus himself and the sake of his gospel. He, in all his matchless beauty, is worth your sacrifice. And his message of freedom from sin and deliverance from death and the devil is one that is worthy of taking on yourself. And so, how do you deprive yourself of those things that would hold you back from being a disciple? Well, by a a trade for something greater. For my sake and the gospel's sake. And here's where it gets provocative. And here's where our understanding of the gospel, I think, is emaciated because we only think of the reward to come. We think of heaven. It's not wrong to think of heaven. It's not wrong to think of eternal life. But there's something that Jesus has for his followers here and now that Jesus wants you to consider as recompense for all that you've left behind. As reward that you can taste here and now. What is it? Well, one, it's extravagant. Whatever it is, it's extravagant and it's for right now. But that he will receive a hundred times as much. That's how Jesus uses hyperbole. He likes a hundred. When the seed parable happened in chapter four, guess what it was? The big harvest. It was a hundred. We like to say, because we're you know, modern and scientific and we know about mitochondria, powerhouse of the cell and all that, we like to say like 10,000 or a million or a billion or whatever. They didn't have billions. Jesus could count higher than you. He's God, but that, that's, he didn't avail himself in his humanity of that. It's a Christological issue. Don't worry about it. So Jesus, when he wanted to say something big, he would say times a hundred. A hundredfold harvest is unthinkable for the seeds I mean, the percentage there is crazy. I'm not good at math or I'd do it for you. He will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age. And then he lines up the list. Following Jesus will get you more than it cost you in your life of discipleship. And this is what it looks like. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms. Sounds like a TV preacher for a second. You don't understand. 
This isn't the call in line on TBN that says, you give up your house, God will give you 10, 100 houses. Hallelujah. Because Jesus has already said that the way that you see what is yours will be transformed. And so these things that are the rewards and recompense of discipleship don't actually belong to you, but they are yours in a gospel way. They are houses that will be shared. That was the criticism of the pagan Lucian. It bugged him that they had this voluntary devotion that was impressed on them that they are all brothers. That from the moment of their conversion, they despise worldly goods alike, naming them as merely common property. That bugged Lucian. But that's how Christians live. We're all brothers and sisters. And so it's easy to see how, as a disciple, you get houses and brothers and sisters. Because what I have is is yours and what you have is mine. And the richness of Christian fellowship, the richness of the family is on beautiful display in Jesus' words as he looks at his comrades, at his brothers and sisters. Remember when he looked and, and his, his mom was trying to you know, wrangle him with his brothers and, and he said, these are my, my mother, my father, my brothers. He looked at his disciples. Your church family, your fellow believers, your fellow disciples as you grow in your Christ-likeness and in your discipleship, will become as precious to you as family. It's why it's so important, even now, in your college years, that you learn to value Christ's body, the church. That the membership to you is not about like someone controlling you or telling you what to do, but it's just saying, like, hey, I want to be a part of this family. Here's my adoption paperwork, church membership form. That's what it means. It means that these are your people, that you'll care for them and they'll care for you. And you have needs and we'll meet them spiritually, physically. Those needs will be met because our houses are common, our hospitality is legendary. Our Love and affection for one another is is the mark of our discipleship. And so it looks just like sisters and brothers and mothers. Interestingly, he leaves out fathers. And that's not to say you won't gain spiritual fathers when you become a disciple. I have spiritual fathers in my Christian life. and I'm sure you do too. But Jesus excluded it from the list, and nobody knows why. Except for perhaps the father that you gain when you follow Jesus far surpasses any earthly father. Probably that's why. But you'll have children and farms. Calvin famously was asked. He had a difficult family life. He was sick. His wife was sick. She died. He never had children of his own for a long period of time. And when asked about that in a letter from one of his friends, 
he said he had more children than he could ever count all around the Christian world because he was thinking about disciples. Jesus promises a hundred times the blessing of the intimate parts of your life, the familial parts of your life, that they will be profoundly enriched by the gift of God in bringing you into his family of being a disciple of Jesus. You will have a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms along with persecution. with your new and constantly growing family of fellow disciples whose homes are open to you whenever you need them to be, will stand alongside of you when persecution comes. This is why it's not that kind of prosperity gospel. It's the actual prosperity of the gospel. And it's attended by persecution. Because this is real. And it's a reminder that we're not there yet. That Mark's congregation that he was writing his gospel to was under Neronian persecution and this would have ministered to them significantly because as they looked around at their bruised and battered and jailed and killed and grieving brothers and sisters and mothers as they fled from house to house and they wondered for the safety of their children and the existence of their farms, they were reminded that they were only receiving exactly what Jesus received and exactly what all disciples know, which is the glories of being disciples together along with the reality that proves our sonship, which is persecution. It's not all sweet and easy, but it's real. And that persecution that bruises and burns us points us towards the great inheritance where the brothers and sisters and houses and mothers and children and farms are made into an entirely new kind of inheritance. And Jesus says, and in the age to come, eternal life. Because many who are first will be last and the last first. Reversing your conventions of life is what Jesus is all about. To follow him and him alone because he's a jealous God is to join in receiving a new identity as a follower of Jesus. A justified sinner saved by grace through faith. And as Jesus calls this new humanity to himself, even in the midst of tribulation and trouble and trial, he pours the love of God out on all his disciples by the Holy Spirit and binds them together. And in so builds a new humanity from the old one, where all history and every destiny and your true identity is bound up in Christ. And it is far more than receiving just your individual salvation, the forgiveness of sins that you love so much. It is far more because you are part of a salvation story that grabs on to the entire destiny of the human race and that 
is bound up in the identity, not of your first father, Adam, but of your second father, Jesus. And in Adam, we all received sin and condemnation and death. And in Jesus, we all receive righteousness and justification and life. So as we follow Jesus and find his family to be far more glorious and wonderful and powerful than anything we knew before him, we realize that now and forever we are part of a new race, a new people, a new life, a new humanity, a new destiny, a second Adam. And what Jesus recovers for us is just not simply Edenic bliss. It is far greater than that. It's a hundred times greater than that because grace is there, forgiveness is there, and glory is there. So come to Jesus as his disciple. Be part of this new human family that he's building unto himself and suffer together with us as we share all things in common and experience the recompense in this age and the age to come from following our Lord. Father, thank you for your reminder to stir our hearts to see things as they truly are. Thank you for the righteousness, justification, and life that comes through Christ, the Father of a new humanity. All that Adam lost to know that Jesus has regained all that we were expelled from by our sin, Jesus reversed that curse and brings us back to our Father. And in Him we find a family and homes and farms and provision and life and love and persecution and eternal bliss. Thank you, God, that in following Jesus, sin no longer reigns. But He gives us His righteousness and justifies us as sinners and grace reigns for all eternity. In Jesus' name, amen.